This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Adam Coleman, welcoming you to Chapter 5 in this Cosmic Library volume on the worlds of Scheherazade. In the last episode, we talked about the way a drive for survival works in the Thousand One Nights. And in this episode, we're talking about how the Knights, through formulas and patterns, sustain almost continual change, play, and uncertainty. In other words, you'll never crack the code to the Thousand One Nights, and that's not only okay, it's kind of what makes them what they are. It's probably the crucial property also shared by Nightbooks in general including last season's focus, Finnegan's Wake. These books can't be easily squared away. Even the infinite quality of the Thousand One Nights isn't exactly infinite. Here's Katie Waldman of The New Yorker. The infinitiness of that story or that group of stories seems always very provisional or contingent. It doesn't seem like a sure thing that that story will go on forever. And I think so much of the anxiety of that is actually like, will this story go on or will she get killed? Will she fail to hold the guy's attention, the, the emperor or king, and be murdered? And so the question of can this story endure, can it last, uh, the story being also sort of the lifeline and the story of her life too, That's a really fraught and tense question. And I actually think that that, to me, resonates a lot with the situation TV is in. Can Grey's Anatomy last for like a ninth season uh, without the emperor audience cutting off its head? But another thing that occurs to me is that I think some of the really interesting TV that's been happening recently has been miniseries. So like The White Lotus, people were talking a lot about self-contained stories. But if they do come back, they're coming back with completely different settings and characters, which raises another issue something might end and then go on in a form that you don't recognize at all. Yasmin Seal, translator of The Nights, describes how this kind of ongoing story making behind The Thousand and One Nights gets you past any sort of easy sense of authenticity. There is no original. There are no authors whose names we know. All we have are these fragments pointing to some ancestor that we cannot access. It's also hard to say, as a result, which literary tradition this work belongs to. Is it an Arabic work? Is it a Persian work? There's a perception in Europe, certainly in the West, that this is the work of Arabic literature, the most famous Arabic work. Whereas for a long time, many Arabs didn't think of it as a great text compared to the great works of Arabic literature. The Knights did not rank very high and in some cases didn't even think of it as an Arabic text. So there's a kind of ambiguity there 
I think there's an argument that it's more of a European text in a funny way than it is an, an Arabic text because of the way it was translated and received in French and in English and then beyond. It's also hard to say on a basic level what the work is, where its edges are. There's no beginning, no end. And it's hard to say what must we have read to say that we have read the nights, to say that we know the nights. Is it enough to have read a translation of the earliest manuscript when we know that many, many stories were subsequently added? And as you say, many people's experience of the work is through pop culture, through the many, many responses that the work has generated. And it's often hard to tell where the line is between the transmission of this work, the translation of this work, and responses to it, adaptations of it. It's a work that has always invited adaptation and continuation. To this day, it's an ongoing process. From the outset, there are all kinds of contradictions and questions on the most basic level that seem to become more pronounced the deeper one goes. And I think this is what makes it so fascinating as a cultural object, but also frustrating for the would-be translator who does have to make decisions about how many stories to include and where to end it. How have people dealt with the ambiguity when they're trying to clear things up? Yeah, the tradition in the West, the general model of literature in the West, I think, likes to think of texts as stable and authors as being um, single, if you like, you know, one, one author per text. And so the tendency in the West, I think, in the reception of the Knights has been to try and fix the text, to say this is the authentic version, this is the uh, most complete manuscript or the most authentic manuscript or the er earliest. The translations that we have tend to work from one particular manuscript and try and make the case that this is the manuscript that ought to define what we mean when we talk about the Knights. But that model for what a book is, what a work is, is, is not the case in many other literary traditions. I've been reading a bit about the Ramayana, the Sanskrit epic, which has something like 300 different tellings. It's a story that's found in many different languages. And it's also a story that's taken all these other forms, dance, sculpture, puppet plays. And I think the Knights is perhaps closer to that model than to what we have usually understood by a book, at least in, in Europe. That boundlessness is also what's made the work very interesting and exciting to a number of European writers, precisely because it is so unstable and such a patchwork. There's something modern about it, even postmodern, because it disrupts all these ideas about what a book is, and it seems to explode all of, all of those conventional boundaries. By blasting off from convention, the Knights leave you with something other than the memories you'll have of, say, favorite movies. Hardy White had a major formative experience listening to a story record based on the Knights, but he says, I don't remember any of the content. When I remember something, I try to figure out what I'm actually remembering. Because a lot of times we, f we plug stuff in, you know, and I think, well, I was listening to these stories. It must have been the story that affected me. Well, if that's the case, why don't I remember the actual details of the story? So I don't think that's the case. I think what affects me is maybe the sound of the narrator's voice, like maybe the whole thing was musical to me. Maybe the specifics are not just lost to time, but maybe they were never important. Maybe I never remembered them really. You know, when I recreate something like that, sometimes I just go for the, the sound of it. Does it sound like, I've done that with like Scooby-Doo, does it sound like a Scooby-Doo episode? The dialogue can be nonsensical. You know, sometimes it's just the, uh, 
all the things around it that are beautiful. That's why we can tolerate really bad TV shows or used to be able to. Because if all the components are there, it doesn't really matter what the content is. One of my favorite things about talking about the Knights has been that it leads to talking about highbrow stuff, let's say Mary Shelley, and lowbrow stuff like Scooby-Doo. I asked Mazin Nowis about that high-low collision. I mean, the early stories, the 14th century ones, are more elevated in their language, and they mirror the overall structure. Take the story of the porter and the three ladies of Baghdad. Like, he's a porter that comes into their life, and these are women of power, you know, so they don't live with men, they're independent, and they make a condition with him. And, you know, he comes in and he wants to spend some more time with, with them, and he's, they tell him, okay, you can you know, we like you, you have wit, you you can entertain us, but you don't ask us about our condition. Basically, that's none of your business. Okay. And so these early ones, we see like women as being powerful, they're business owners. And that's also interesting that this idea, of course, was not only accepted, there were many business owners. I mean, we know that the Prophet Muhammad's wife, his first wife, she was a business, a very successful business owner. She was older than he was. It's really kind of interesting to see, you know, how in some ways that ancient world was more progressive than later centuries. So we see that uh, there. So the early on is kind of this is considered high art because the form is intricate. So the, the Porter and the Three Ladies of Baghdad has stories within stories itself. It mirrors the overall form of the knights. But then we have the children's stories later on, you know, like Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves and Ala Adin, known here as Aladdin. Those stories, you know, they're more like kind of children's stories, you know, type just to pass the time. Even though they have a moral, like all stories do, Still, they did not have that structure, that play with form, you know. So those later stories that are not included in the original uh, that survived. So I'm not, I'm going to call it an original, but it's not really the original. It's the or- the original surviving manuscript. So later on, there isn't as much attention to form and language and poetry, and that kind of gets dropped off. And th- those later stories, these all come with Galand, mm-hmm. um, with Galand's translation, and they were told to him orally, interestingly enough, by a Maronite priest that was accompanying him and came back to Paris with him. And he told him those stories or gave him sometimes the skeleton of what those, those stories were. And then he composed them and wrote them. They did not exist before Galand wrote them down. They didn't exist outside of oral storytelling until Galand translated them. There's so much flux in the history of the knights, something like mutability in play. This is built into so many of the stories themselves, even at the level of language, as Yasmin Seal explains. I thought a lot about the language around cunning and ruse and trickery, because it's such a prominent theme in the stories, and it's such a prominent theme in the frame story, the sort of trigger event is a woman being deceitful, being crafty. And this theme of craftiness kind of runs through many of the tales. 
and I wanted to be attentive to how that quality is presented. It's sometimes translated differently depending on whether the the subject is is a man or a woman. And I noticed in some of the other in some English translations that the the word for skilled or, or crafty was sort of automatically translated by some of these earlier translators as in very negative terms like treacherous and, and wily. And when you look at the Arabic, it's often more neutral and sort of uh, gender neutral, if you like. There are a couple of examples in in uh, in the embedded tales within the, the cycle of the porter, um, the calendars or the, the dervishes. One of them tells a story about a king's daughter who was brought up by a an old witch who's simply described as, in terms of two adjectives, makira and sahira. Makir simply means someone who uses ruse, someone who is cunning. And sahir is someone who uses magic, an enchanter of some kind. I just looked at what the previous translator, translator had done and found a wily and treacherous old woman who was a witch, which seems to in- inflect things in a more negative way than, than the original does. So I had something like a sly old woman who was a skilled witch. There is this constant question of what is ruse, what is deception, what is a moral failing, and what is artistic skill and artistic control, as if the whole work were an attempt to stretch the meaning of ruse and craftiness to include art and storytelling. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Artistic play, fiction-making, and remaking have taken the nights across centuries through different languages, different forms, different media. Here's Mazinaos again. This, you know, also creates a collaboration across time and space in the sense that the nights that started very much as a kind of Asian enterprise, once the Europeans come in and, to, and then they take it up as well, we start seeing it kind of include more and more cultures in it. These stories we don't know exactly when they started. Many of them seem to be pre-Islamic and then kind of a Muslim flavor was put into them after Islam and in the Arab world. And they have not ended in the sense that people are still adapting the nights. And these we can think of as still, it's still, you know, so a thousand and one, there's always one more story, always one more story to be told. The stories are kind of never begin, you know, they have no beginning and no end. That's partly why the nights still kind of inspire uh, rewrites and reinventions and adaptations to this day, because we don't have any text that conjoins so many cultures like the nights do. Does the appropriative side of this history tend to lose out to the collaborative side? Does the collaborative energy win typically? I think so. Ultimately, it does. I think, you know, of course, during uh, the kind of colonization of uh, or the French mandate uh, and colonization of North Africa and parts of the Middle East, yeah, early on it could be. But what's really interesting is once Galan writes the night, it gets retranslated into Arabic. So it's really interesting. So 
you know, his becomes a, a kind of original, gets retranslated. Then we have other editions. For instance, in 18, I think it's 1818, the first modern Arabic edition is printed in Calcutta. And then in 1835, a second modern Arabic edition is called the Bulak edition. It's really important. And it contains A Thousand and One Nights. That's the first time we see it in Arabic, where it's A Thousand and One Nights. But the Bulak edition brings back in a Galand translation of the stories that were not found in the Syrian manuscript, and so on and so forth. So we have the Calcutta, and then there's another Calcutta edition later after that, still in Arabic, that contains A Thousand and One Nights. And between those two, this is where uh, Richard Burton comes in. And he looks at both of these and, and another like Arabic German edition and puts them all together. And he's the only person today who's translated the entire nights. And I have him and they're with the notes, there are 16 volumes. You know, he spent years and years, you know, I mean, you can just kind of spend your entire career just translating the nights. How would you describe the Richard Burton translation? The Richard Burton translation is a literary feat. I think, you know, he creates an Arabic in the English language. He coins words, he does all kinds of things, uh, even using nonsensical words in English. That means nothing just to rhyme or create that prose poetry. He's able to masterfully create that spirit of Arabic in the English. Unfortunately, that comes with a price in the sense that he takes many licenses in his translation. For instance, in his translation of the frame narrative, when Shah Zaman finds his wife with a cook, and there was a class issue there, he adds so many racialized details that were not in the original because it's part and parcel of these 19th century attitudes and racism. So there's that aspect that comes up that I think in many ways, unfortunately, overshadow the literary prowess of his translation. And then, of course, his copious notes, you know, I think of as a kind of pseudoscience and pseudo-social science, so to speak, where he takes these tales and treats them as if they're somehow real and entirely re reflective of the Arab world, you know, as one, even though, you know, there's no such thing as one Arab world. It's many different countries and different cultures, but he does that and it's, it becomes quite problematic as a result. How does this history go beyond the 19th century? Where, where, where are we left? The 19th century was kind of the, the Orientalist moment, really, Orientalism. It starts, of course, in the 18th century as a literary genre. In, arguably, we can say Orientalism starts with kind of the Crusades and the demonization of uh, Muslims and Arabs and so on and so forth in preparation to kind of take back the Holy Land. But it really comes back, you know, Orientalism as a field of study and, and kind of European field of study. 18th and, and, and 19th century, that's when we see that, that big craze. And then there's a move away from that with modernism. But then other things, you know, starts happening, start happening in the 20th century is where we start seeing you know, fiction adaptations and film adaptations. We move away from the translation or the imitation exactly 
of those stories into kind of reinventions and philosophizing, reinventing the knights and those tales. Yasmin Seal explains how a book that in some ways has a straightforward premise could lead towards something like infinite change, beginning with Scheherazade's efforts to change a tyrannical situation. Yeah, I think it's possible to think of her and of the work as belonging to the kind of mirror for princes genre, you know, the kind of medieval advice literature, which was designed to sort of give advice for rulers and kings and describe a kind of ideal model for how a ruler should behave. There's a sense in which Shahrazad is teaching the king another model for not just kingship, but personhood, how to be a person. And I think one of the ways it does that is changeability. You know, fickleness and changeability are the qualities that set the whole thing in motion. A woman sleeping with someone else, (laughs) a woman being untrustworthy. This is the catastrophic event that sets the whole work in motion. And I think there's a way in which the whole work is teaching the king and teaching us, its readers, to be comfortable with what is changeable, what is strange, maybe also what is beyond our control. I put this question to Mazin Nawis. Is there often a, a moral kind of character to Thousand One Night Stories, or does it sometimes just play with story and, and kind of resist a moral? Yeah, sometimes it does. And sometimes there are multiple morals and sometimes they're ironic morals. Like the moral actually doesn't make sense and it's ironized. Morals are not stable in the nights. They change quite a bit. And there is an eschewing of them here and there as well. What's an example of an ironic moral in one of these stories? In uh, the Sinbad voyages, Sinbad, his name is As-Sindibad al-Bahri. So it's basically in Arabic, which is As-Sindibad. He comes from Sindh, which is Central Asia originally. And al-Bahri means of the sea. So he's Sinbad of the sea. In the original story of Sinbad, there are two. There's a doubling that takes place. There's Sinbad the porter. And he's like Sinbad of the land who is carrying a load and ends up in front of the house of Sinbad, the seafarer, the sailor. He kind of recites a poem that at some level rails against God for his poverty, saying, you know, I I carry all this weight and I do all this work. And yet, look, you know, I see, I hear merriment in this house. So Sinbad, the sailor, who's actually a merchant, invites him in and then tells the stories every night of his voyages. Um, So there's the the seven voyages. And every night he would give Sinbad, the landsman, money. So by the end, the landsman has enough money actually to last him for a bit or money to invest in a business or do something else if he wanted to. The moral here is it's indirect because it's never spelled out, but it's about also that those who are better off in society should take good care of those who are not so fortunate and here the Sinbad the porter, the landsman. But also though, in that story, we see Sindbad, Sindibad. And then of course here, you know, we see in some versions he's called Sinbad, Sin and Bad, okay? And he is sinful and bad in the sense that when he goes and, and meets other cultures, etc., we see him stealing or at some point, you know, he's caught in a grave. He goes to a, a culture 
that when one husband or wife dies, the other is buried with them. So they are lowered into a cave and then, you know, one is dead and the other will die, you know, next to them. So they bury the living with the dead. So Sinbad marries in that culture without knowing that. Then he's, his wife dies and he's brought down with her. He survives a few days there, but somebody else dies and they bring a woman down. He smites her with a bone from somebody of the dead and kills her and takes the ration of food that she had with her in that cave to survive all the while kind of justifying his actions. So he's not really a lovable character at all. He, he is sin and bad, you know, he's not a sin bad. This is where the moral is really ironized because on the one hand, he gives alms to the poor after his voyages where he does many bad things. And then he's giving alms to Sinbad, the landsman. But that means Sinbad, the landsman, has to say, oh, yeah, look, these voyages are great. And I agree that even though Sinbad, uh, the merchant, goes on these trips for greed and more money, he has to accept that this is actually morally sound, even though it's not, obviously. So the knights at last don't give you anything simple. They give you complexity upon complexity in stories within stories. But there is a simple way to go about it. You find a pattern, a problem, a detail, or an idea, and you spend some time with it. Go for a sort of mental walk with it. Hardy White sums it up here. Actually, he kind of sums up the main idea of the Cosmic Library, too. I had a change in the way I saw things, and this is completely in line with what you've been doing. So I was going to this Torah study group. <laughs> this is strange, but I'll tell you why the reason is. is because I found out that actually when you're talking about Bible stories, you're not talking about Bible stories at all. It's an excuse to talk about other things. It's just a jumping off point. And so what you do is you go into just excruciating minutia as a way of opening up. It's a key. And you just use it to open up a tangent. And that tangent takes you to marvelous places. And then I found out you can literally do it with like almost anything that's complicated. So you could do it with Don Quixote. You could do it with Finnegan's Wake. You could do it with anything where you would have to spend like an afternoon on a sentence. So I was like, well, that's great. Well, you can literally start anywhere. And you just descend infinitely in between the words and you see how like you could go on forever having a radio show about one you know say it's about one thing but then you know you could all oh, these things are actually related to it and they're they're almost inexhaustible it's this inexhaustibility that brings me back to the nights and to finnegan's wake and to other books of infinity and infinite night Yasmin Seal explained to me how the knights can exceed endings almost entirely. Some versions have an ending. In some versions, Shahrazad comes to the end of her final story and presents the king with all the children that she has somehow birthed in the meantime without him noticing. And he forgives her and is a changed man and agrees to let her live. I find that ending really unsatisfying Partly because, you know, it's only because she's produced children, she's produced heirs, that the king has spared her life. And also because it's a kind of return to the status quo. 
it's a very conservative sort of justice, if you like. Shahrazad is allowed to to go on living as the queen, as the the person who has produced an heir for the king. I think the book doesn't end. <laughs> I'm reluctant to end it. The force of this work and what's so kind of strange and uncomfortable about it is that it's a book without an end, without resolution, without conclusion, and that there is a kind of a lesson in that or a, a kind of justice in that, constantly delaying the moment of judgment. Thank you for listening to the Cosmic Library. Guests this season include Katie Waldman, a critic at The New Yorker, Yasmin Seal, translator of The Thousand One Nights, Jim Al-Khalili, theoretical physicist and author of The House of Wisdom, Mazen Naus, professor in the English department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and Hardy White, host of Miracle Nutrition on WFMU.